Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Some people by age 13 have found the thing that will become their lasting passion. Others haven't. Judith Grizel was firmly in that first group. And even now, she remembers the day when everything shifted. At 13, I drank a ton of alcohol, and I absolutely loved it. It was a profound, life-changing experience. Grizel would ultimately become a scholar, a scientist, a professor, an author. But she didn't know that on that crucial day when she was 13. And for the next 10 years, she says, she didn't turn down a single mind-altering substance. So every chance I had, I, I took a drug. But at the same time, I got more and more in denial of my the consequences of taking those drugs. So it's a really strange mental illness where you collude in your own death, ultimately. You know, so I'm participating. I think it's hard, I think, for some people to view this as a disease because with most diseases, you're sort of an innocent victim. I mean, you're just living your life and you find a lump in your breast or something and you don't know how it got there. But here I was, you know, doing whatever I could do to get as much as I could. Being infatuated can sometimes be wonderful. But for Grizel, it cost her pretty much everything. Money, relationships, school. And I fortunately, at 23, ended up in treatment, kind of, you know, not realizing what I was in for. And with a few weeks not having anything in me, I realized, wow, my life looks so different from the way I dreamed it would be, say, when I was 8 or 9 or 12, before I had picked up. And I I was kind of shocked and surprised that it was so different from what I had dreamed. What would happen next is such a strange bookend to what happened early on, it's hard to believe. But Judith Grizel went from being a girl who was lost in addiction to a woman who insisted on understanding how that addiction had taken control of her. She got a Ph.D. and published academic papers. She's now a professor of neuroscience and psychology at Bucknell University. And she's the author of the book Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. And Grizel, from her unusual vantage point, happens to be watching an amazing social transformation, a transformation in America's relationship with drugs. Consider this. In the year 2000, which wasn't all that long ago, 20,000 people died from drug overdoses. In 2017, the number of overdose deaths had more than tripled to 70,000. More Americans now die of overdoses than die from guns. That wasn't true in 2000. More Americans now die of overdoses than die in car crashes. That also wasn't true in 2000. A lot of that is the way that opiates work. So it's very hard to die of an overdose. You can do it of a stimulant, and even of alcohol, it's relatively difficult, although it happens, you know, fairly often. But with opiates, it's very narrow ledge between feeling some relief from withdrawal and actually dying. Judith Grizel hit bottom in the 80s when stimulants were popular. But we're living at a time when the chemical refinement of opiates and the creation of synthetics like fentanyl They've radically increased the potency of what's out there. And so I think what happens is that, you know, there's a very small place between misery and death. (laughs) And people are trying to stay there. And that's tough to do when you don't know what you're buying on the street, you know, or you're sometimes trying to withdraw. Every time you, you go off of them for a little while, your brain starts to readapt to not have them, and then you're less tolerant, and then you, you never sort of know where you can, where you should land. This isn't the first time that opiates have been popular. They also caught on in the early 20th century when they were often prescribed to women and to kids. But our modern ability to cook up incredibly strong stuff in the lab, that changes the equation. And the way that we use drugs now, Grizel notes, it's changed quite a bit. So it looks to me anyway, that people, although we've used since the beginning of time, we tended to do it in community settings where there was some ritual around it, like passing the peace pipe or the bowl or the drink, the kava bowl or something. And so it was a part of a community thing. And then there were certain 
constraints around using that way. I think what's new in at least probably the industrial age and beyond is using an isolation, having access to very high concentrations that you could sort of deliver on demand. You know, you don't have to wait for it to come to you. You could buy whatever, you know, grain alcohol for that matter. So I think that it's both a change in us um, combined with a natural drive and better access to higher potency drugs. In your research, do you feel like communities and cultures across time and place have always used drugs or like mind-altering substances and that that's just kind of like, you know, a piece of who we are? I do think so. From what we see in anthropologists and uh, sociologists and people who study humans since the beginning of time notice is that everybody who had access to some mind-altering chemical has used it. I guess the the sort of funny quote is that the Inuit had the misfortune of being unable to grow anything, and so they weren't able to modify their experience with drugs. But as far as we know, every other culture has been using drugs purposely. And it's not only humans. It's all kinds of animals, mammals. Birds will go after fermenting berries. Insects will really? take chemicals. Yeah, one of my favorite insect stories is about a um, species of ant in South America, I think, where they devote part of their colony to raising some kind of beetle. And this beetle, you know, makes them not able to make so many ants. And also, you know, they have to feed the beetles and take care of them and keep them clean. But the beetles grow some interesting fungus, I guess, on the back of their little beetle legs, you know, where the little hairy legs are. Mm. And in that hair grows some fungus that the ants harvest occasionally together. It seems like a community effort. And then the ants all eat the fungus, and then they get really slow. And it seems there's no nutritional value in the fungus. It's costing them time and effort. Mm. But they seem to enjoy that occasional holiday. You um, have written that a person has a much better chance of surviving brain cancer, at least at the moment, um, than staying clean. Why is that? I mean, you would think, like, we, as as we've been talking about, addiction is nothing new. Drugs are nothing new. uh, Addictive substances are nothing new. How can we not, you know, be better at this point at, you know, solving addiction? Well, many of us, so everybody, I guess, or mostly everybody wants to try drugs. Some people, like me, are especially susceptible to the adaptation that occurs in the brain that causes addiction. And when that happens, it's really hard to kind of dial it back. And I think it's hard from a neurobiological perspective because, as we said, the drugs are so potent and also from a social perspective because they're so widely available. So, you know, one of the worries I have about marijuana lately is as it becomes more and more part of our culture, it's going to be harder and harder for people like me to stay away from it. Mm. So contrast uh, marijuana and alcohol a little bit for me because I think these are two really interesting substances because we're living at a time, of course, where a lot of laws around marijuana in different states are being liberalized. It, it, in some places, this is it's something that's fine to do. And, uh, you know, at least to a certain extent, like you can have possess a little bit of it. Um, obviously, alcohol is something we've tried to outlaw in the past, didn't work out that well. But, you know, I, I just wonder how you think about these two substances. Are they similar? Should one in your mind clearly be legal and the other illegal? Should they... Like, Just give me your sense. Okay, so that's a great question. We've been studying alcohol for a long time, and we haven't been studying marijuana very long at all. We know a lot about how alcohol damages brain tissue and other bodily tissues, how it damages families, how it impairs driving, um, how it costs lives and well-being. We don't know so much about marijuana I think that's largely because it hasn't been studied so long. So I really am a strong advocate for having the research done so that we can know what are the 
costs and maybe benefits of THC or other marijuana plant compounds. I think that they're the same, alcohol and marijuana, in that they both activate this core reward pathway in the brain called the mesolimbic dopamine pathway, as do all drugs that are abused. So all addictive drugs share this reward pathway, which is probably why we evolved the tendency to take those drugs, because for the same reason we have the tendency, in a way, to enjoy sex or like tasty foods. You know, they're good and interesting. So I do think marijuana is addictive, as alcohol, of course, is addictive. And by that, I mean that they produce pleasure, so they induce craving. People want to try them and use them. The brain adapts to both so that you become tolerant and dependent. And I do think that both can be harmful. What's left to understand is how marijuana is harmful. Is it going to be as harmful to alcohol, but in different ways? It surely will be in different ways, or maybe not so much. And I think the answer to that is going to depend on lots of things. Well, as you've seen, you know, public policy around um, marijuana change, I, I would say really drastically in the last few years. And it seems to me that, it, you know, this will continue on. Um, I mean, obviously, this is something that, you know, you've used before. Um, as you say, it's not as studied as alcohol, but like, how have you... How have you viewed it as you see the kind of public policy landscape really shifting around um, marijuana and legalization? I feel sad about two things, I guess. One is that science has never driven policy on drugs. And I think it is such a shame that we have empirical methods to understand these things, yet superstition or wishful thinking or other kind of political or social forces determine what happens. I guess I just love science and I love the scientific method and how it can help us understand what we're doing. So I think that's a shame. And I also feel sad about the potential damage to young people I talk to a lot of young people, and they point out rightly that there's been a lot of damage from alcohol and tobacco, and so why should we draw the line here? And I think from a logical perspective, they're exactly right. So all three of these drugs, or at least two of them, we know are damaging, and they're widely available. But as far as the public shift or even the legislative shift, I think in that conversation— we should be asking and trying to answer what is the evidence showing us about what this can do. And I think it's natural, it seems to always happen this way, that people jump on board, you know, fully, and this is great, and it's going to cure anxiety, and it's going to cure pain, and it's going to cure post-traumatic stress disorder, and all the things we don't have cures for, of which there are many. But I think that's really naive. There, It's not a panacea. It may be good for some things. It may be that THC is good for some things. It seems like cannabidiol, the non-psychoactive component, is definitely good for at least one thing, which is childhood seizures that are really devastating. But I, I'm a little bit skeptical that it's going to really help with the many things that we think it might, like mental illnesses. And I do think it's more likely that it's going to exacerbate some of those problems, as we've seen recently with psychosis. So that's a major problem in the world. Schizophrenia is uh, a disease characterized by psychosis, and there's pretty growing and clear evidence that smoking high-potency marijuana regularly can catalyze or induce psychosis and schizophrenia then and that's really going to be a major cost, not to mention anxiety increases or depression increases, which we are seeing some of. Hmm. Okay, so let's um, pause here for just a minute. I'm going to come back with Judith Grizel, who's the author of Never Enough. She's also a professor at Bucknell 
And when we come back, how politicians should tackle the drug epidemic and what individual addicts actually need. If you want to read more about Judith Grizel's views and her assessment of the science on marijuana, we've got more from her on our website, innovationhub.org. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When Judith Grizel ended up in rehab in her early 20s after 10 years of drinking and taking drugs, she had a hard time dealing with what her life had become. But then she had a thought, a solution that could change everything. It's funny how it came to me. Well, Judy, diseases can be cured. Maybe you can fix this. And honestly, it was only about my own selfish interests. I did not want to think. I was 23 that I had another 30 or 40 years of life at that time. It seemed like plenty where I wasn't going to be able to pick up anything. And so I thought, oh, I'll solve it, and then I'll be able to use. So that was the plan. She'd become a scientist, cure her addiction, and be able to use drugs again. And parts of it really worked out. I took all my addictive, compulsive energy and put it into making note cards and reading the textbook and getting into graduate school. It's kind of, you know, school's a good thing for people like me. It was new every day. Grizel is now a behavioral neuroscientist at Bucknell University. And the addictive part of her personality, she says, it goes back about as far as she can remember. I think my first drug may have been reading. So I had a desire to escape my experience that was present before I drank alcohol. And I can remember I would come home from school. I could read probably upside down. I could read in a car. I'm still this way. I could read walking because it was a way for me to get out of my own head. And, you know, I, my life wasn't so bad. I don't know why I felt that need to escape my experience, but I think I just found it painful. And to treat that pain, Grizel soon started doing more than reading. So I can remember thinking, you know, well, I have an exam or I have a funeral to go to or I've got some, pla- you know, a plane to catch. And I would be not able to stop drinking from the night before and not show up. But as bad as things got, and Grizel herself admits that she didn't turn down drugs or alcohol from age 13 to age 23, in a strange way, she was lucky. You're more likely to be able to get off drugs and get your life sort of back together if it's really bad than if it's really not that bad. So for instance, if it is cancer and it's a small tumor, that's usually great news. If it's addiction and you're able to manage it, it's actually bad news. So I think because I hit bottom with stimulants, particularly injecting stimulants in the 1980s, I hit fast. You know, it was like a steep decline. So I, when I didn't have any drugs to tone down, you know, what was going on and and sort of check out, I got scared. Which was right about the time she thought of becoming a scientist, curing her problem so she could use drugs again. And she did train to be a scientist, and she does study addiction. But when it came to a cure, she began to realize the problem was a lot thornier than she'd anticipated. It dawned on me probably, honestly, about seven years in, like, holy cow, this is so complicated. The brain is, you know, more complicated than the universe. So at that point, I actually had a little crisis because I felt like, you know, I'm very good when I have a goal, either a bag of cocaine or a dissertation or, you know, tenure or something like that. And when I didn't have one of those right in front of me, I thought, wow, what am I going to do? What Grizel did was write a book called Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction, which helped her reach for another goal, because that final dream she had of using drugs again, she had to leave it behind. And I do believe that it helped me a lot in the long run, because I'm 100% convinced that if I picked up, it's been 30, almost 33 years, but if I decide to pick up again, I think it's most likely that I would end up right where I was, which is to say that I would give up everything I care about so that I could have this relationship with chemicals that 
kill me. So with this unique perspective, understanding the mind of an addict because it was her mind, and understanding the mind of an addict because she studies the brain, Grizel has been watching a nation wrestling with an increasingly serious drug problem, a nation where overdose deaths have more than tripled since 2000, where legions of people are trying to get into rehab and stay off drugs, and where politicians want to figure out how you address the problem. Grizel says we're mostly dealing with it in the wrong way. Politicians often identify the wrong causes, and addressing those isn't going to get you anywhere. The availability of drugs is only a piece of the puzzle. A real solution would mean giving people alternatives. People like me are goal-oriented. I think that's why we can give up anything just for, you know, another bump. But I also think that if we have goals and opportunities that might help us to put those in place of drugs and alcohol. And so in a way, I think that having hope and for something new is really important. And it might be that the increased incidence of addiction reflects an increased incidence of despair or loss of hope. I also feel that, as I said, I was a novelty seeker, and that is one of the personality, you know, genetically mediated inborn tendencies that predicts substance use disorders. In my little small town, I got novelty by smoking weed and trying strange things. But I think if there were other ways to do that safely, then it might be that people like me could channel that tendency into something that was not only beneficial for them, but beneficial for the world. So I think I make a good explorer, I make a good scientist, and I made a great addict. So Mm. those things maybe go together. And, And it's possible that for young people, opportunities for stepping outside the margins a little bit that were safe. When I say safe, I don't mean too safe. I just mean not addiction, not car crashes, but something else, travel or some kind of innovation or artistic endeavors, creative endeavors. Those things are kind of on the edge, and I think those could be helpful. A final question about, about you know, solutions. Um, I, I, uh, I want to read a quote from your book, which is, um, the solution is not to be found on the supply side, but rather depends on a change in demand, and that's likely to be an inside job. That speaks to what you were just talking about, but I think an awful lot of people think, um, and politicians talk about, the notion that this is indeed a supply-side problem. Like, you put drugs out there, and that, it's in and of itself, is the problem. Talk about that a little bit. And again, like, if you were a scientist called in to advise somebody who was maybe more in a political capacity, but you were just the person on the science side and on the side of, like, yes, I've experienced addiction and what it's like and how people think, um, how would you counsel them about this idea that the supply is the problem? Well, I have a great thing in my favor, which is that it hasn't worked. You know, if you look at the data and our efforts over the last 50 years to regulate and control drug access, it's been an unbelievable failure. So I guess, you know, the evidence is definitely uh, suggests that trying to control supply is not going to work. But even more than that, our ability to make new chemicals and to make very potent chemicals that are much more easy to traffic because they're in such small quantities, you know, so potent, is as increased. So as we get fancier guns and surveillance and all of that, we also get more clever. And that I can tell you from my own personal experience, you could not have stopped me. Hmm. I was going to find a way. And Hmm. it didn't matter what it cost or what I had to do. And that is not just me. That's why we have such a problem. If it was simple to just, you know, just say no, then people would not do it. And I guess I feel personally that taking a good, honest look at myself 
and seeing how I was colluding in my own death and hurting a lot of people on the way, I sort of had to take that responsibility. And I don't think that's easy at all. I think it would be lovely if someone were to say, oh, you know, you're doing this, but here, let me fix it for you. But I kind of had to do the hard work of climbing out of that hole. And I didn't do it alone. I'm not saying that, but I, I had to be willing to change. And what made me willing to change was seeing so clearly that I couldn't get enough drugs. I feel like you're saying, you know, you have to address people's lives. You know, getting more night vision goggles so you can see, you know, where drugs are coming over the Canadian or Mexican border at night or whatever, like that's not really probably the solution. No, we'll make them in our bathtub. You know, you don't. they don't have to come from any place else. We, we know how to do it here too. And there will be ways. It's a waste of, I think, good resources that would be better spent on education. And the education is that the brain adapts to any drug that you take regularly by producing the exact opposite effect of that drug. Therefore, you can't get enough to get high or to escape with time. And so we should ask, how do we live with the challenges that we encounter every day without having to escape. Judith Grizel is a behavioral neuroscientist at Bucknell University. She's the author of Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction. Judith, thanks. This is great. Thank you. On our website, we've got some great podcast recommendations for you. If you want to know more about drug policy and how it's changed and why and what that means for ordinary Americans, that's at innovationhub.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Tara Miller. In 1946, Winston Churchill settled in for a night of poker. He'd been playing the game for more than 40 years, and he wasn't shy about letting people know he was good at it. This particular game was played on a train, and his opponents were President Harry Truman and his staff. Churchill, unfortunately, got creamed, and he lost a ton of money. So much so that when he left the room for a moment, Truman told his folks to ease up. It was a rough night, and it came during a rough period for Churchill. He had been an inspirational leader during World War II, but in 1945, Britain cast him and his party out of leadership. Meanwhile, the world was changing in ways that concerned him. The Soviet Union was amassing power, and Europe was struggling through a painful recovery after widespread bombing, huge death tolls, and economic ruin. There was, however, what Churchill saw as a solution. We must build a kind of United States of Europe. 
In this way only will hundreds of millions of toilers be able to regain the simple joys and hopes which make life worth living. This idea of a kind of single united Europe was invented after the war, even though the countries involved had, in many cases, been at each other's throats for hundreds of years. The new idea was embraced by lots of rich, powerful folks. And to be fair, it still is. I've been to any number of speeches and presentations over the years in Brussels and Frankfurt and Berlin where they point out that, you know, if you look at Europe as a whole, in many ways it's actually bigger than the U.S. as a single market. That's Gillian Tett, chair of the editorial board and U.S. editor-at-large of the Financial Times. The problem, of course, is that, you know, it's one thing to say, yes, we'd like to be the United States of Europe, or at least punch above our weight on the world stage. Um, to do that, though, you need to have clear-cut decision-making and a clear mythology, founding father mythology, and a clear vision, which is clearly not the case. The most obvious reflection of that lack of vision has been Britain's contentious struggle to get out of the European Union, a struggle that has overshadowed election after election and which, most recently, handed Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who campaigned for Brexit, a resounding victory. But that doesn't mean that the British government won't have to juggle a huge mess of competing desires. Fortunately, Tet says, in a continent where countries are ticked off at one another and no one ever seems happy with the deals they negotiate, one thing has unified them over the last few years. The arrival of Donald Trump has so horrified most Europeans that it's actually galvanized to unite them in opposition to a degree. So there's that. But still you have to ask, and we're going to, whoever cooked up this idea that Europe should be a single entity, who thought, hey, let's invent a new currency, And as Europe tries to recreate itself, how are its decisions changing the world? Mark Blythe, the professor of international economics at Brown University, says, if you go back to the beginning, the very beginning, you will find an unlikely player, America. And we weren't just present at the creation of this new Europe. We helped create it. Why? Well, if you had to sum it up in one word, Germany. So the original foundation was called the European Coal and Steel Community. And the basic idea here was originally an American idea, which was you can't kind of tell the Germans not to be an industrial power. Right at the end of World War II, Hmm. Treasury Secretary Morgenthau had this idea of pastoralizing Germany. Basically, you can stay farmers, but you can't do anything else because you're too much trouble. And of course, that was ridiculous. But what they wanted to do is to make sure that the weapons of warfare, particularly heavy metals, coal, steel, the stuff you need for tanks and causing trouble, was in a sense spread out amongst the Europeans themselves. So this took a long time. It didn't begin as a large political Mm. project. It was very much small steps to do with security. And then from security, it went into building essentially a customs union to lower tariff barriers and trade barriers and to get trade going amongst these Mm. economies so that the real recovery could begin. And in that regard, it was remarkably successful. Gillian, um, do, do you think that as these steps, kind of how, how Mark lays out, as these steps went little by little towards this more this vision of like one Europe, um, do you think in some ways the elites were out of touch with like ordinary Europeans in this project? Well, I think one of the biggest problems with the whole Eurozone project can be captured if you pick up a euro note, a euro bank note. Hmm. Because if you look at the backside of a euro note, what you have are pictures of windows and pillars and buildings um, rather than faces. It's almost unique in the world that you have a currency or bank note with no faces on. And the reason for that is that when the European leaders were trying to create um, the euro note zone banknotes, they didn't really have any clear-cut figures or faces who had basically been part of the founding mythology. I mean, America has all the founding fathers, the Hamiltons, all of those. In Europe, no one really knows quite who created a modern Europe. And what's even worse is because it's a consensus-driven um, system, they couldn't even agree on any buildings or windows or arches to use on the banknotes. So you have imaginary buildings and arches and windows to not offend anybody. And 
to me, as a former anthropologist who trained in anthropology before I became a journalist, this lack of any clear-cut founding mythology to unify the continent, the lack of people who or faces from history that ordinary people to look to is part of the core problem today. Mark, you were talking about how the original idea here was, hey, Germany, you cannot be quite the industrial power that you once were. Uh, so here's a new idea. You'll be part of a unified Europe. Did this plan, without like that benefit of a common heritage, did it in some ways slip under the radar? Because, like I said, it, it kind of came in small steps. Yes, but there's also something else going on, which Gillian's quite right about. There's no founding fathers, but what mm. there were was a collecting a collection of let's say founding fatherly midwives around the 1970s and 1980s. When mm -hmm. they passed from the scene, the next generation of leaders that came up, Schroeder, who was the German Chancellor, Tony Blair, they just didn't care for the project in the same way, and a lot of that had to do was they were not the World War II generation. Right, the people that pushed it forward in the 80s, they remembered the war. That's why they thought yeah. the European project was important. By the time you get to the 1990s, you have a new generation of politicians that were not part of that post-war generation. And for them, the project really slipped back to sort of the second most important thing every day rather than the first most important thing. Yeah, I'd say, to me, the great tragedy of what's happened in the European Union in the last five years is that a project which was really created in reaction to war and to avoid another war and with a hope of reducing hostilities between different nations has in the last five to ten years ended up actually exacerbating those tensions and hostilities. And to my mind, um, it's really came to a head around the Greek crisis because um, in an ideal world, the most intelligent way to cope with the fact that Greece was plunging into recession would have been to essentially you know, I sometimes joke, create a gigantic German-funded Club Med holiday camp inside Greece. <laughs> and that way you could have used public money in Germany to actually pay German pensioners to go on holiday in Greece. Mm. Much the same way, frankly, that Florida attracts snowbirds in winter who come down from the industrial parts of the Midwest um, and you get the kind of transfers you need across economic borders. Of course, that never happened. Um, and in fact, what's ended up happening is that Germans and Greeks are more at odds with each other than they've ever been in recent history, mm. um, which is a tragedy. Well, Gillian, I mean, when you talk about, you know, people really hoping after World War II and thinking just this can never happen again, we've got to sort of knit these groups of people together. Um, was that ignoring hundreds of years of history in which the Germans and the French were fighting in which the French and the English were fighting. Like, was it saying ignore things that um, in some ways, you know, you were talking about anthropology before and founding myths were like, like foundational to the way that people thought about themselves, maybe in opposition to other groups of people? Well, people always define themselves in opposition to other people and people are always tribal in the sense of having an identity. But it's entirely possible to create a group identity that transcends um, local ethnic identities. It's entirely possible for identities to change quite radically over time. I mean, just look at Switzerland, which has, you know, a whole mishmash of different identities. And yet they haven't been trying to kill each other for the last um, few hundred years. And in fact, Swiss are pretty coordinated. The problem, unfortunately, is that the economic incentives within the European Union system in the last few years have switched from putting everybody on the same page and aligned to a situation where they're not aligned. And as you've had those economic incentives misaligned, economic pressures come up as a result of the crisis. And plus the rise of populism right across the Western world, it's created a very nasty cocktail where nationalism is now the order of the day and populism rather than any sense of pan-continental integration. Um, Mark, do you want to talk about that a little bit in sort of uh, the, we think about populism here in the U.S. You know, people were sort of very focused on what's happening here, and there's a lot happening here, so that's not surprising. Um, but, you know, do you want to talk a little bit about how we're a piece the U.S. is a piece in something that really indeed is going on in Europe and is affecting this European project. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the phrase that I like for this is global Trumpism. 
So essentially, a simple way to think about this is back in 2008, when we had the financial crisis, the assets and incomes of the top 20% of all of these rich countries was effectively bailed out by the government and reinsured by the taxpayer. In many countries, particularly in Southern Europe, where that crisis became acute, that was then accompanied by rather savage cuts to public expenditure, transfers became conditional, the finger pointing of northern saints and southern sinners, the virtuous Germans and the spendthrift Spaniards became the order of the day. And what was very much what Gillian was talking about, this kind of coming together of Europe, this polyglot identity of Europeanness, was absolutely cast against national stereotypes. And once you let that stuff out of the box, it's very hard to put it back in. So what's happened throughout Europe is very similar to what's happened in America, even if it has its own particular cadence because of what happened in the Euro crisis. But essentially, when you've presided over the largest increase in, in for example, economic inequality in, in modern history, you have a financial crisis that basically bails out top income earners. And then you put this in um, nationalistic terms, you're going to get a reaction. And that reaction mm -hmm. is a faith, a loss of faith in the mainstream political classes that have been governing Europe and have been the drivers of the European project. So Europe itself becomes the target. It becomes the football in this new nationalist competition. Hmm. And maybe both of you can talk about this, but, you know, just as we've seen here, concern about immigration and rising concerns, and certainly the current president embodies that in, in a, a clear way, um, that's also not limited to the U.S. And, you know, part of this issue of, like, bringing together the different peoples of Europe is people are concerned about people who are not them and immigrants and the ease of immigration. Um, Mark, do you want to start on that? And then, and then Jillian? Um, sure. I mean, an interesting example of this is uh, what happened in Sweden recently. So they have, the, they have their own sort of nationalist populist party, the Swedish Democrats, and they came very close to becoming the majority party in the Swedish parliament. Now, was this about immigration? Well, yes, but it's not as if there was a sudden spike in immigration concerns in Sweden, if you look at the data on public opinion. Rather, what people were reacting to was a kind of elite consensus amongst the Swedish governing classes that if anyone questions anything about immigration, you're a racist. So you just can't talk about this. And by pushing this off the agenda and refusing to engage in, a, in, a, in any debate about it at all, it kind of inspired this nationalist backlash. And I think that's part of what's going on, that there are certain, there's a policy consensus in many areas which has emerged across the rich countries of the world over the past 20 years, where certain things are just not spoken about. And immigration became one of those things. Therefore, in a time of economic and social stress, it becomes politicized and it gets a particular cadence and becomes particularly important in that moment. Hmm. Jillian, it seems like, you know, to go back to your, your discussion about founding ideas, you know, I, I think of a um, uh, uh, minority leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, saying that we sort of want to be known by the Statue of Liberty rather than Trump's wall. And part of, a, of inventing Europe, inventing a single Europe is figuring out, OK, well, who's in Europe? And who isn't? Who is European and who really doesn't qualify? Well, you've absolutely put your finger on the central problem, which is that because there hasn't been a founding mythology, because there's never been a single vicious fight to unify Europe or to define the borders of Europe, um, because you've never had, frankly, the Civil War or any of the American history, the boundaries of Europe have never been clearly defined. Um, during the Cold War, they were essentially defined by the Iron Curtain, but that's obviously changed radically now. And one of the essential problems is that, you know, the US might talk about immigration as a big problem and talk about Hispanic um, immigration. Um, but that's been a very slow burn issue that's you know built up over a number of years um, and is part of the fabric of America. What's happened in the last three, four years with the immigration wave from North Africa and from Syria has really come with a sudden shock. And when Angela Merkel said effectively that the doors were open, she was reflecting the liberal knee-jerk reaction of most European leaders post-World War II, which is to act as a beacon for liberal values and inclusion. Um, but the sheer magnitude and speed at which the immigration crisis has exploded has really blown apart much of that liberal consensus. 
Mark, what what role, if any, I, this is hubristic, but what role are we, the U.S., playing in terms of, uh, you know, Europe thinking about who they are and who they need to be? Well, as Gillian said earlier, we always define ourselves in opposition to someone else. And having elected Trump, you've given Europeans a wonderful figure to rally against and say we are absolutely <laughs> not that which, of course, is nonsense because they have their own populists, many of whom are just, you know, as Trumpish as Trump is. So, uh, again, that's not really true. Um, the United States doesn't really play a role in Europe beyond hectoring. I mean, we're, we're, they're quite right to do this. And this goes to Gillian's point um, about foreign policy, for example, is they have no military capacity. They've been free riding off of the United States forever. Everything that Trump says about the 2% target for defense spending in NATO, et cetera, is essentially true and correct. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Mark Blythe from Brown and Gillian Tett from the Financial Times about the invention of One Europe and where that idea came from. Um, Mark, I'm going to dive into a problem that you've identified with this invention, this invention of One Europe, um, and you've called it the Hotel California problem. Uh, and of course, I can't resist playing a little bit of Hotel California in honor of that. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. So you say the problem is essentially exactly what we just heard from the Eagles, which is once you check in, you can't ever really leave. Uh, why not? Right. So you've been using the euro for 20 years. You don't have a printing press. Let's say you're Italy. You've got bad banks. You've got zombie firms. You're not growing. You've got very high youth unemployment. And let's say there's another financial crisis, and that really threatens the Italian economy in fundamental ways. Well, you can't bill your own banks. You can't print money. You're completely dependent on a currency that you don't control. Now, that means you've got a very serious structural problem if there's a big shock. But over the more normal times as well, it creates a very big problem politically. And this is exemplified by Greece and Italy and other southern countries. You can vote for whatever government you want, but you're really going to have whatever policies the Germans and the secure parts of Europe want to have because you have no autonomy. And if you try and get out of the euro, hmm. all of your savings are denominated in euros. If you try and have new lira, you know that new lira is going to trade substantially cheaper than the euro. Everybody will try and open German bank accounts holding euros. It just creates an enormous economic mess. So you've got a problem because democracy is meant to give you choice, including mm. over economics. But you can vote for populists, but they'll behave just like the guys you voted before because you don't really have any real control. And that's the thing that they didn't foresee when the euro came in, was how it's going to disable politics on a national level. Hmm. Um, Gillian, when you look back at, at the Brexit vote and then you look ahead, um, do, do you think you know like what that vote was about? And do you think what do you do you think it's a good idea would be in, in Britain's interest to stay in the European Union? Well, I thought that voting for Brexit was madness. Um, I mean, the part of the problem is that because I have an international life and because I'm professional mm -hmm. and because I've, you know, done pretty well in recent years, you know, I'm exactly the kind of person who a large part of the population was protesting against. Um, but I thought the vote was madness. After the vote, I went back to the UK and spent a lot of time talking to my friends and family who had voted for Brexit to try and understand what the issues were. Okay. And, you know, was forced to go into quite a process of, you know, reflection and thinking about, you know, how countries and elites had become disaggregated. Since then, though, um, I would welcome Brexit if it was used by the UK as a chance to define a new identity and to actually create a positive agenda for trade for a self-confident vision of how the UK could work in the future. In fact, that hasn't happened at all. It's been a very negative process. And Brexit's defined by what it's against rather than what it's for right now. And that's tragic. Mark, when you look back, do you feel like you know what that vote was about? And what do you think, you know, should happen going forward? Well, a very simple way to think about Brexit is this. A bunch of nationalist Tories in the Conservative Party decided to leave the world's largest free trade zone so that they could have better free trade agreements. Just stop there. It literally makes no sense. This wasn't really about the EU. It was, as Gillian said, this was an opportunity for voice. 
to give a frustrated population that had been through 10 years of hardship a chance to tell their ruling elites exactly what they thought of them. And what the Remain campaign was, was mm -hmm. the entire British ruling classes coming together arm in arm to tell everyone what was in their interest in the most patronizing way possible. Mm -hmm. And the public said, you know what, if you all want this, you're not going to get it. That's, to me, what Brexit was really about. Sounds like a magic formula. I like to call it schadenfreude politics, to use a good German word. <laughs> so, again, glasses half full, glasses half empty. For many Europeans, the euro works. For many Europeans, the Europe that has been built is still a positive and attractive vision, particularly in comparison to a nationalist alternative, particularly if the United States is seen as the other that this is reflected against. So it's not all doom and gloom by any means. I mean, it's definitely the system has taken a good beating over the past 10 years. And exactly what Gillian says, there needs to be some real recalibration of effective voice in democracy for European peoples. And they really need to do things about the scandal of European uh, mass unemployment amongst young people particularly in southern Europe. But these are tractable problems. These can be addressed. And if they are, Europe will still be here. Hmm. Mark Blythe is professor of international economics at Brown University, and Gillian Tett is the U.S. managing editor of the Financial Times. Thanks so much to both of you. This is great. Thank you. Thank you, and I hope we're not too gloomy. <laughs> <laughs> On our website, we've got a fascinating article from Politico, which has a different take on Europe's lack of military spending. It's something that President Trump mentions a lot and that Mark Blythe referred to. But this article argues Europe being dependent on the American military, that's not a bug in the system. It is the system that America helped design. We've got the piece for you at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Eleanor Ho. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Northeastern University. You can learn more at northeastern.edu. And Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. DanaFarber.org slash everywhere.